This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. I have been asked a lot lately to revisit a topic that for many will be a first time hearing it. The Apostolic Constitution, Quo Primum, on the Sacred Liturgy by Pope St. Pius V, a document that Francis, in his infinite mercy and kindness, used a manner that can only be described as diabolic inversion to attempt to destroy the timeless mass of the Church, in order to reinforce the Novus Ordo, which 99% of Catholics attend. It's very strange, but we will revisit that topic today. I have for you here the text of the Apostolic Constitution itself, followed by an analysis of it by Father Gregory Hess, one of the great minds of the Church in our modern time, who passed away several years ago, sadly. First, though, I want to say something here. There is a great lie that is told about, quote, primum, that Pius V's document was inventing a new Mass, a sort of novus ordo for his time. That is simply not true. The traditional Latin Mass can be traced back at least to the time of Pope St. Gregory the Great in the late 6th century, and honestly to even prior to that, going back to the Apostles. It did change over time, which is something Pius V was addressing here. What he was doing was editing, tightening up the rubrics for, and protecting, in perpetuity, the Mass that had existed already for many, many centuries, preserving against innovation for all perpetuity. And what further Masses or missiles would be published by his successor popes would do the same for his missile with the expressed intention of preserving, protecting it for perpetuity. Now there is, however, one thing here. Not everyone is convinced that this document has any really binding force, that many actually believe that quo primum and resorting to it is a weak argument against the innovations we see and the attacks on the Latin Mass, that it has very little binding force. Good people disagree on its power and with Father Hess's take on it, and that's fine. I'd have their position featured here, but there isn't any room or even anything in writing that I've found that has details really on that argument. However, one last thing. I intend to try to explain what Father Hess says by breaking down and breaking up some of his talk on this. I'll play some segment of it and I'll try to explain what he's saying. It'll make things a bit easier to digest, I think. Anyway, let's dive in. Quo Primum Apostolic Constitution of Pope St. Pius V, promulgated in 1570. From the very first, upon our elevation to the chief apostleship, we gladly turned our mind and energies and directed all our thoughts to those matters which concerned the preservation of a pure liturgy, and we strove, with God's help, by every means in our power, to accomplish this purpose. For, besides other decrees of the Sacred Council of Trent, there were stipulations for us to revise and re-edit the sacred books, the Catechism, the Missal, and the Breviary. With the Catechism published for the instruction of the faithful, by God's help, and the Breviary thoroughly revised for the worthy praise of God, in order that the Missal and Breviary 
may be in perfect harmony as fitting and proper, for it is most becoming that there be in the church only one appropriate manner of reciting the psalms, and only one right for the celebration of Mass, we deemed it necessary to give our immediate attention to what still remained to be done, vis-à-vis -vis the re-editing of the Missal as soon as possible. Hence we decided to entrust this work to learned men of our selection. They very carefully collated all their work with the ancient codices in our Vatican library, and with reliable, preserved or amended codices from elsewhere. Besides this, these men consulted the works of ancient and approved authors concerning the same sacred rites, and thus they have restored the Missal itself to the original form and rite of the Holy Fathers. When this work has been gone over numerous times and further amended, after serious study and reflection, we commanded that the finished product be printed and published as soon as possible, so that all might enjoy the fruits of this labor and thus priests would know which prayers to use and which rites and ceremonies they were required to observe from now on in the celebration of Masses. Let all everywhere adopt and observe what has been handed down by the Holy Roman Church, the mother and teacher of the other churches, and let Masses not be sung or read according to any other formula than the, of this missal published by us. This ordinance applies henceforth, now and forever, throughout all the provinces of the Christian world, to all patriarchs, cathedral churches, collegiate and parish churches, be they secular or religious, both of men and of women, even of military orders, and of churches or chapels without a specific congregation, in which conventual masses are sung aloud in choir or read privately in accord with the rites and customs of the Roman Church. This missal is to be used by all churches, even by those which in their authorization are made exempt, whether by apostolic indult, custom, or privilege, or even by oath or official confirmation of the Holy See, or have their rights and faculties guaranteed to them by any other manner whatsoever. This new right alone is to be used unless approved of the practice of saying Mass differently was given at the very time of the institution and confirmation of the Church by apostolic see at least two hundred years ago, or unless there has prevailed a custom of a similar kind which has been continuously followed for a period of not less than two hundred years, in which most cases we in no wise rescind their above-mentioned prerogative or custom. However, if this missal, which we have seen fit to publish, be more agreeable to these latter, we grant them permission to celebrate Mass according to its right, providing they have the consent of their bishop or prelate, or of their whole chapter, everything else to the contrary notwithstanding. All other of the churches referred to above, however, are hereby denied the use of other missiles, which are to be discontinued entirely and absolutely, whereas by this present constitution, which will be valid henceforth, now and forever, we order and enjoin that nothing must be added to our recently published missile, nothing omitted from it, nothing whatsoever be changed within it under the penalty of our displeasure. We specifically command each and every patriarch, administrator, and all other persons or whatever ecclesiastical dignity they may be, be they even cardinals of the Holy Roman Church, or possessed of any other rank or preeminence, we order them, in virtue of holy obedience, to chant, or to read the Mass according to the rite and manner and norm herewith laid down by us, and hereafter to discontinue and completely discard all other rubrics and rites of other missiles, however ancient which they have customarily followed, and they must not in celebrating Mass presume to introduce any ceremonies or recite any prayers 
other than those contained in this missal. Furthermore, by these presents, this law, in virtue of our apostolic authority, we grant and concede in perpetuity that for the chanting or reading of the Mass in any church whatsoever, this missal is hereafter to be followed absolutely, without any scruple of conscience or fear of incurring any penalty, judgment, or censure, and may freely and lawfully be used. Nor are superiors, administrators, canons, chaplains, or other secular priests or religious, of whatever title designated, obliged to celebrate the Mass otherwise than is enjoined by us. We likewise declare and ordain that no one whosoever is forced or coerced to alter this missal, and that this present document cannot be revoked or modified, but remain always valid and retain its full force notwithstanding the previous constitutions and decrees of the Holy See, as well as any general or special constitutions, or edicts of provincial or synodal councils, and notwithstanding the practice and custom of the aforesaid churches, established by long and immemorial prescription, except, however, if more than two hundred years standing." It is our will, therefore, and by the same authority we decree that after we publish this constitution and the addition of the missal, the priests of the Roman Curia are, after thirty days, obliged to chant or read the Mass according to it. All others south of the Alps, after three months, and those beyond the Alps either within six months or whenever the missal is available for all. Wherefore, in order that the missal be preserved incorrupt throughout the whole world and kept free of flaws and errors, the penalty for non-observance for printers, whether immediately or immediately subject to our dominion and that of the Holy Roman Church, will be the forfeiting of their books and a fine of one hundred gold ducats, payable ipso facto to the apostolic treasury. Further, as those located in other parts of the world, the penalty is excommunication latia sententia, and other such penalties as may in our judgment be imposed. And we decree by this law that they must not dare to presume either to print or to publish or to sell, or in any way to accept books of this nature without our approval and consent, or without the express consent of the apostolic commissaries of those places, who will be appointed by us. Said printer must receive a standard missal and agree faithfully with it, and in no wise vary from the Roman missal of the large type. Accordingly, since it would be difficult for this present pronouncement to be sent to all parts of the Christian world and simultaneously come to light everywhere, we direct that it be, as usual, posted and published at the doors of the Basilica of the Prince of the Apostles, also at the Apostolic Chancery and on the street of the Campo Flora. Furthermore, we direct that printed copies of this same edict, signed by a notary public and made official by an ecclesiastical dignitary, possess the same indubitable validity everywhere and in every nation, as if our manuscript were shown there. Therefore, no one whosoever is permitted to alter this notice of our permission, statute, ordinance, command, precept, grant, indult, declaration, will, decree, and prohibition. Would anyone, however, presume to commit such an act, he should know that he will incur the wrath of Almighty God and of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul. Given at St. Peter's in the year of the Lord's Incarnation, 1570, on the 14th of July of the fifth year of our pontificate, Pope St. Pius V. There is, however, one thing here. Not everyone is convinced that this document has any binding force. 
Good people disagree on its power and with Father Hess's take on it, and that's fine. I'd have their position featured here, but there just isn't any room or anything in writing that I have found that details it. One last thing. I intend to try to explain what Father Hess says by breaking up his, some of his talk on this, and I'll do be as brief as I can be when I do that. It'll make things a bit easier to digest, I think, anyway. So let's dive in. Father Gregory Hess was a canonist of some repute. He was quite the character, and long before internet apologetics was ever a possibility, he would tour various places giving talks on the state of the church. And what you're about to hear is a sample of one of those talks. And when he would give those tours, he would talk about the heresies that had crept in among the hierarchy and the errors that came down from the very top of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. He never minced words. The talk you'll hear now can be heard all over the internet, really, but there is a database called, I think, Father Hess Talks that I'll have a link to in the weekend show notes, which should be available as of the time that this episode goes public. So check it out at returntotradition.org. If you're one of the patrons of the channel getting an early access to it, I haven't got the post up, and it won't be up till Sunday morning. But anyway, in the first clip that you'll hear, Father Hess speaks about Quo Primum and asserts that it is binding on all future pontiffs after Pius V, not merely on the bishops or priests who would seek to promulgate a new Mass on their own authority. He also asserts that what gets called the traditional Latin Mass, or Tridentine Mass, did not come from the Council of Trent, but had long since been previously an existing rite in Rome. The Fathers of Trent therefore said that the Pope could not change the rites. Is that my interpretation, or is it papal teaching? It is implicit papal teaching because have you ever ha held a Roman Missal in your hands? Well, if you get a chance, look up the first decrees at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the Roman Missal, you will find the decree Quo Primum by Pius V. And as the only exception in church history, you will not only find Pius V's decree, but you will find three other decrees. All through church history, no pope published a book without canceling his predecessor's document if there was one. The typical way, for example, of publishing the Code of Canon Law or the Corpus Juris Canonici that was the predecessor before 1916 would be to authorize a new edition and put in one's document, like Pope uh, Pope uh, Urban the Ninth would put in his name and throw out his predecessor's decree. The Roman Missal, since 1570, is the only exception in church history. Why? Because Pius V did nothing else but respect the Council of Trent when he codified what was there. When Pius the when Pius V, Saint Pius V, in 1570 published the Roman Missal, he did not change anything. He changed a few little rubrics that were kind of, uh, how do you say, uh, they were not clear, they were kind of confusing, and uh, so he changed them. But the book as such was the Missal that had been used for centuries by the Roman Curia. And he canonized it with the decree, Quo Primum, in which he says, not only the book must never be changed in the future, this Mass must be said by all priests in the future, but the decree as such is irreformable. In the next clip, Father Hess addresses the classic objection that a Pope cannot be bound by his predecessors. Tradition, he says, binds the Pope. 
Remember, the Pope is supposed to be the guardian of the deposit of the faith, and sacred tradition is one of those key components of the deposit of the faith. Some people now argue that the Pope cannot bind the Pope. They argue in what you call legalistic nonsense. They quote Roman law and they misquote Roman law because they quote Roman law well, but they quote Roman law on a wrong level by quoting the old line par in parem potestatem non habet. An equal has no power over an equal. The Pope at first sight may seem another Pope's equal, but then how about the dogma of the Immaculate Conception? Can a future Pope take that back? No, you know very well he can't. So that means that the Popes have to respect their predecessors. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly what the old oath, oath of our incoronation says. Don't be mistaken by the fact that the oath of incoronation was signed in writing by the Popes only between the year 781 and 1302. But the text of the oath of incoronation is still today to be found in that singular collection of rites that pertain only to the Pope called Liber Diurnus Romanorum Pontificum. The text is still there. No Pope has ever contradicted that text. We are talking about basically 1500 years approved theology. That means it's the faith of the Church that the Pope cannot change things. And there, in the Oath of Incoronation, it says, if I was to betray the handed-down tradition of my predecessors, God shall not be a merciful judge to me at the Last Judgment. So, tradition binds the Pope, especially in liturgy. Why? The oldest liturgical principle that has been written down the first time in the year 250, exactly 1750 years ago, is Lex Orandi Statuat Legem Credendi. The law of what has to be prayed will determine the law of what has to be believed. Do not confuse the law of what has to be believed with the deposit of faith. The deposit of faith is at the very beginning of everything. But the law of what has to be prayed, that is the Roman Missal, for example, will determine the law of what has to be believed. What is the law of what has to be believed? The creed, for example. Every time you recite the creed at Sunday Mass, at the same time you recite what you have to believe, what you have to believe in order to remain a Catholic. Now, in the liturgy, you always found the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. You talk about Lex Orandi, the law of what has to be prayed. In an ancient missal of the 14th century, or in a handwritten missal of the 8th century, you will find the Feast of the Immaculate Conception on December 8th. That's the law of what has to be prayed, because the priests had to celebrate that feast. However, it only became the law of what, had to be, what has to be believed in 1854, when Pope Pius IX proclaimed the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. So you can easily see in history that the law of what has to be prayed will determine the law of what has to be believed. Lex orandi statuat legem credendi. Until Pope Pius XI included, no Pope ever misquoted that line. So for uninterrupted 
1600 something years, we had the popes quoting the same line in the same way, always saying the same thing. Then Pius XII in 1947 turned this line around, which I don't think he had the right to do. It's a theological mistake, but it's not our topic today to talk about Pius XII. The Roman Missal cannot be considered replaceable due to their being part of the sacred tradition. Modu proprios do not even begin to have the authority to replace such a thing. Quo primum was an apostolic constitution, not a modu proprio, which prior to Francis the Great and Merciful were used largely for disciplinary matters. He used the modu proprios unilaterally and as an aside, is personally responsible for 40% of the modu proprios issued in the last 200 years of church history. That's something to consider. But continuing with Father Hess. You can see from this principle that the Roman Missal cannot be considered a mere disciplinary law. It is much more than that. It is way above any discipline. The Roman Missal is the number one law of what has to be prayed because Holy Mass is the number one prayer. Therefore, when Pius V said, this missal cannot be changed, and this decree confirming that is irreformable, he did in fact bind his successors. I ask you, is this my interpretation or is it the Pope's? Well, I showed you that is the papal interpretation, because even John XXIII did not dare to take out quo primum, or the decree followed with, uh, by Clement VIII, or the decree by Urban VIII. He did not dare to replace these documents. That means even John XXIII visibly thought that he was bound by his predecessor's decrees. That makes 400 years of popes being bound, be, who felt, quote-unquote, that they were bound. Of course, the popes didn't just have a feeling about it leave the feelings in California. In the Vatican, you have theologians to discuss things like that. Every single pope, before he writes a decree, will ask his cardinals and his theologians on how to write it. Very few popes ever were proud enough to think that they could single-handed write decrees. And that shows you why the new right, which Paul VI himself called Novus Ordo Misse, the new order of Mass, is not a work of the Church. And it cannot be considered the Latin Roman Rite because the Latin Roman Rite is bound in the old Roman Missal. So what do you call it? Well, I call it a schismatical new rite. Why? Why? What does schism mean? <clears throat> Literally, in Greek, schisma means to cut, to cut, a cut somewhere. Schism, to go into schism means you cut yourself off the church. You do not split the church, as John Paul II says, or wants you to believe. You cut yourself off the church. You cut yourself off from the church. You leave the church, in short. A schismatic act is not necessarily a formal schismatic act by declaration, so that you're really to be considered a schismatic, but it is something that cuts off something of the church. Now, against church tradition and against the Council of Trent, against Quo Primo and against the interpretation of 400 years of papacy, Paul VI wrote up a new rite. 
Therefore, that has to be considered a schismatic rite. Finally, the Roman Missal isn't disciplinary as motu proprios traditionally were prior to Francis. The act of promoting a new missal is itself a schismatic act, as would be the attempt to suppress the mass itself. Thus, given what Father Hess has said elsewhere about Francis's predecessors in the papacy, I doubt he would have very pleasant things to say about Francis. But we'll never know for sure, since he passed away during the early days of the Benedict pontificate. But what do you think about this? Let me know your thoughts in the comments, please, and share this if you think it helped with Cor Primum. There is another view out there that Pius XII changed this in the 1940s, and I'll try to find that document and record it in the near future if I can, but quo primum seems unambiguous to me. But I'd like to know your thoughts, so let me know in the comments, please, and if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so because it does help. As always, pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.